0: Okay, welcome to Cinelit, uh your regular monthly uh, podcast about films and filmmakers. We are back again. It's back to a, a duo of me and Daryl. Say hello, Daryl. Hello, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, nice to be back again. Yeah. So after a few weeks of, uh, of differing guests, uh, differing hosts, uh, we we are back to the core of me and Daryl this week. So it's the real deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the real deal, people. Yeah. Unfiltered, Daryl and Adam. <laughs> So we are, we are, we decided to, we were knocking around different subject matters and we noticed that Bill Murray was turning 70 this month. So no. we thought we cannot, we cannot avoid talking about Bill Murray. Not that we would require much arm twisting to talk about Bill Murray, but here we are. We're going to talk about Bill Murray's long career in film. How is Bill Murray 70? It's nuts, isn't it? It just feels like he's like, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels like he's, Permanently middle aged, grumpy man sort of look, you know, and that sort of like disheveled, slightly bored, slightly odd figure that he cuts in films like Quick Change and yeah, those films. And he feels like he's always going to be that, and he doesn't look that much different now, you know. So, yeah, so so we're
1: we're on Bill Murray. What were your thoughts on Bill Murray? Are you a fan? I've grown into a fan over the years. Um, I must admit, he he took a bit of getting used to for me, but. as times passed and as his film roles have developed, I've I've become a confirmed fan, and I've gone back to those early films again. I I like a lot of those a lot more than I used to. I, I guess
0: I mean I, I I obviously I grew up Ghostbusters was such a big part uh, of my childhood that he was always there. Uh, you know, yeah. with, with one movie after another, you know. But um, yeah, so it's so I guess my generation he's always been that guy, and then now he's developed into a little urban legend kind of character, isn't he? You know, where everyone loves Bill Murray. How can you not love Bill Murray? You know, sure. sure. But let's 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 go back to the beginnings of Bill Murray. <laughs> let's go back to the early days. So we're going to look at his first. Uh, raft of movies that he did early, pre-Ghostbusters really, when he was probably trying to find his path in filmmaking. Mainly through with collaborations with Harold Ramis, who would obviously play a big role in his his uh, post-Ghostbusters career. But um, his early collaborations with Harold Ramis on films like Stripes, films like Meatballs, Caddyshack,
1: he was coming out of uh, coming out of Saturday Night Live at this point. You know, he'd he'd, he'd been part of that team, and uh, that sort of means a lot nowadays. But uh, you know, to, to British audiences, we we didn't get to see Saturday Night Live. You know, history sort of tells us, oh, there's, there's this huge, huge comedy show in the states, and all of this great talent came out of it. We we sort of didn't know at the time, and, and we were only getting to see sort of John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy a little bit later through the movies that came over here. And we'd sort of got these vague murmurs that, oh yeah, they're they're from this American comedy show. But we we never ever got to see it, Un- unlike now where everything's available to everyone, you know. And so Murray, we, we learned about through the films that you've mentioned there, Adam. And they came bang, bang, bang one after the other into British cinemas. And on on the on the shelves of video stores, if you went to the comedy section of your video rental shop in sort of 1980, 81, you know there'd be all these Bill Murray titles lined up, and uh, everyone, you know, there were they were hits on rental. Caddyshack, especially, I think. Again, um, you've got a little Bill Murray career in in microcosm there with those early films, because he's sort of dipping in and doing cameos in some of the films. He's taking the lead role in others. He's he's sort of in maybe a, a a secondary part that he builds up into a lead in some of the films, you know, and he sort of continued to do that all through his career, as we as we'll discuss during the day. But uh, as as we say, primarily known for comedy and for TV comedy, so he breaks into the movies, and uh, the big three early on are the ones you've mentioned: there, Meatballs, Caddyshack, and uh, Stripes with uh, with Ivan Reitman, I think. Great in all of them, really sort of steals the show in all of them. Although I, th- I think there's a case for saying that uh, Rodney Dangerfield has a damn good go in Caddyshack.
0: I think they're both trying to steal the show from Chevy Chase in that one. I re- really, I yeah, think uh, yeah. it's an interesting one. But there's a nice sort of dynamic because Bill Murray wasn't in the original cast of Saturday Night Live. Mm. He, you know, he was. He came on in the second season when Chevy Chase left. Yeah. And he kind of replaced Chevy Chase as that as that. Yeah. And then here he is.
1: Practically stealing the movie
0: Caddyshack away from Chase
1: uh, a couple of years later. Yeah, I mean Caddyshack's interesting because it's it's a chance there for Murray He's he's almost in a little film of his own in that movie. Um, he's he's playing the assistant greenskeeper at the golf club where all the action's set, and. There's this whole sort of plot going on surrounding Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield and so on. And Bill Murray, you keep cutting away to these scenes of him and these little animatronic puppet gophers that he's he's trying to get rid of. And it's like a little movie all on its own, interspersed within the main action. So yeah, he's got his own little showcase there and, and it all sort of diverges together at the end. He he
0: really does elevate that character way yeah. beyond I think the original the original intention um, to the point where it's the one people are reminded of and is sorely missed from Caddyshack too. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And and you know I I I get the impression that 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 part and and the in in the editing of that film you do wonder if. They sort of thought, oh, we've we've really got something here. Let's build this up and build this up and make it a, a real showcase, you know. Because it could have been with any other actor, you know, that could have been um, just simple cutaways, you know, quick fire gags and so on, and then back to the main action. And here we sort of go away for minutes at a time and sort of focus on what Bill's doing and what the gophers are doing, you know. And it does make this this little parallel story within the story, you know, and. Uh, He he really does make the most of what could have been an absolute nothing part there.
0: I think also it helps with that period of time where there was a lot of uh, teen American U.S. teen sex comedies that were coming out around that period. Yeah, and this could have easily been another one of those. Sure, beefing up that role and having Rodney Dangerfield in it in a bit more of a scenery chewing cameo, a small role. It really yeah. made, moved it away from being put into that ghetto of The uh, Last American Virgin, Hawkies those kind yeah, of yeah.
1: types of films. I think you can say the same about Meatballs as well, because that's that's got summer camp setting, you know, and uh, very, very similar to some of the horror films that were coming out at the same time, like Friday the 13th. Again, summer camp is not something that we really knew much about in England, but uh, we learned about it through American movies. And then here's this comedy film coming out, and yeah, Bill Murray's in it again, this name that we've heard about, you know. And again, he steals the show. And again, that's another film that could have easily become a, a Porky's clone or something, or Last American Virgin clone. And it isn't, you know. Murray, again, drags that up by the bootstraps and sort of makes it into something else. And uh Turns it into a very sort of heartwarming story by the end, which is which is extraordinary given the given the setup. Do you think do
0: you think it's the maybe more of the Canadian influence there? Because meatballs, there's a lot of Canadians working on that. Maybe that the slight shift of sentiment, shift of uh, mentality on making that kind of movie from Canada to America is maybe not as uh,
1: easy as, as as we initially thought. It's actually they they approached it a slightly different way could be could be and of course the other thing there is that there's absolutely no harm in selling your film as though it's a sex comedy getting everyone to pay their their money or their video rental or whatever and then by the time they find out it's not porky's three or whatever they've they've enjoyed the movie anyway for what it is so uh there's certainly no harm in miss selling the film that's that's been happening since day one in hollywood you know and uh yeah, I think I think maybe the Canadians did tone it down a little bit. I, th- I think the the film, for what it is, is is great. You know, it it works very well. It's funny. Murray again steals the show. He's he's doing a lot of the sort of comedy shtick, but he's also involved in the sort of central core story as well. So, uh, you know, he's. Sort of character with a heart, really, as well as being the cynic, he sort of manages to straddle the two. And again, I think that's something he sort of continued through his career. You know, I think he'd see himself as being a very sort of uh, cynical, very sort of abrasive sort of comedian, but he fits perfectly into more romantic or more sort of the gentle sort of roles and his great skill over the decades has been sort of balancing those two I think often in the same movie and he's mm. still doing that right up to today
0: yeah absolutely yeah he has that he has that Undeniable charm, I
1: think, which
0: yeah, you yeah. can't is, is, really get that up character well.
1: right there from the start. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Are you talking about how we, we, in this country we got, we didn't get something Live, but we got the movies? I'm assuming the Ruttles was was a bigger hit over here than it was in America with Eric Idle, and Neil Innes, and yeah, obviously Bill yeah. Murray has a, a small cameo in that. So maybe that was the the first first appearance on our shows. Yeah.
1: I'd forgotten that. That would have been the first time I ever saw him. Yeah, and and the Ruttles was big over here. I mean, I I bought the album and everything, you know. And uh, but we we didn't know much about where the Ruttles had come from, other than it had been made by Eric Idle, you know, who everybody knew from Python. Yeah. So it's only in later years that you learned all about the sort of American comedy connections and everything. And uh, and gave it a bit of context as to where it actually arisen from, but uh, I think Eric Idle was enough to sort of sell it over here on his own, you know, and that's how it was sort of seen in Britain. That that's reminded me that that would have been the first time that I ever saw Bill Murray without having a clue who he was.
0: So so Bill's doing these movies throughout this period, and he's jumping like 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 he would do in his later careers, jumping between comedies. But he's also taking on slightly more serious roles as well. Already at the stage, I think I think it's one of those ones where comedians probably realise that there's a shelf life for most comedic actors. There's a shelf yeah. life, and then if you don't move into more dramatic roles, potentially your career will not be as 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 long as it should be. You know, you think sure. about like Tom Hanks being one of the most famous of those uh, uh, examples where he moved out of comedy entirely, almost.
1: Even even the likes of Steve Martin and Jim Carrey have, have sort of dabbled in that, and uh, they I think they've always been known as comic actors. But every now and then they'll they'll do a sort of dramatic part or something that's a little bit more of a stretch. Yeah, and uh, it's it's something that all comics feel the need to do. I think Bill Murray's made a career out of that. Really, almost at the point now where he is a dramatic actor who occasionally dips back into comedy.
0: Yeah, no, I'd agree with that.
1: Um, so in this early
0: period, we've got appearances in it's still a comedy, but like Tootsie, you know, it's still a comedy, but it's a slightly more well. We're going to nominate this one for Oscars type of comedy. Oh, sure, sure. Um, rather than your sex comedy meatballs or, or things like that, so a slightly more highbrow comedy. Um, but he also did he also played Huntress Thompson in Where the Buffalo Roam in 1980.
1: Yeah, and what what a, what a great fit he is for for Hunter F. Thompson. Very
0: great casting, you know. Oh, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, perfect. No, really, really good film, and um, all all based around that period where Thompson was probably at his his peak as a writer and at his peak as a sort of personality, creating this this sort of mythos around himself. Right, right in the middle of the whole sort of fear and loathing uh, sort of era. And yeah. Murray is is superb, you know. Or the, the next best thing to getting Thompson to playing himself, really, and him, and, and him on screen with people like Peter
0: Boyle and Bruno Kirby, you know, fairly good actors. But again, another raft of those comedy
1: actors who do serious roles as well. I mean, Peter Boyle. And that's 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 a really good sort of ensemble cast, I think, because any any uncertainty that Maury may have had about himself as a dramatic, serious actor, or doing something that wasn't meatballs, you know, or that wasn't trying to blow up go- gophers on a golf course, you've got Peter Boyle and actors of that caliber in there, and and they a a real bolster for for an actor like Maury, you know he people that he could really sort of play off and it shows in the film you know it, it the the sort of uh, the chemistry between the, the 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 sort of leading players there Really does pay off and really helps the film, and it's it it it's got this whole vibe. I, I think much more successful than the um, Gilliam Thompson movie with uh, with Johnny Depp. Uh, I I like that a lot, but uh, where the Buffalo Road really really captures the, the spirit of what Thompson was all about.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree. I think I think I think there's a subtle difference between the counterculture and drugs culture in the two movies. I think yeah, Gilliam's leans way more on the drugs. Than than where the buffalo roam, I think it's more oh, the sure. counterculture aspect of, of Hunter S. Thompson and where the buffalo roam, I think.
1: I think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. The way Maury plays him, Thompson is is believable as a journalist and a writer, you know. Yeah. And it, it's not just all fueled by by other substances. Mm. The key fuel seems to be the drive to have something to say and to get that down on paper, you know. Missed deadlines, albeit. I think he really, he really sort of gets inside Thompson, and uh, it's 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 a a great biopic, I think. And he's he's I can't I can't think of anybody better to to play that part. So we we move on to like 1984, which is a, a pivotal
0: <laughs> pivotal year for, for Bill you Murray. that, yeah. Obviously, it's the year Ghostbusters came out, 1984. But he's got three movies that he was released in 1984. And, and and for me, they feel like potential alternative worlds where Bill Murray could have gone. So you've got <laughs> Ghostbusters, where he becomes megastar, comic actor, big budget Hollywood star, which is what we're going to talk about generally afterwards. We've also got Nothing Lasts Forever. Yeah. Low budget uh Saturday Night Live, smartly written indie film, eighty four indie film. So it's like in that world of a Jim Jarmusch, Stranger Than Paradise, those kind of movies, or um, actually probably more like Down by Law, which mm. is very similar in that comedy crime indie world. And I think bits alongside that in that you can see him going into that world earlier than he actually does. And then obviously the the, the other one that we're gonna briefly talk about is The Razor's Edge which is a period costume.
1: Yeah yeah. Um, a drama. This seems to be a case of Murray having suddenly finding his, himself with a little bit of clout in Hollywood you know he's he's had a few hits in, in previous years um, he's built a reputation in the film business as well as TV and suddenly and, and we're in the 80s here where mad things were happening and, and if you had a hit or became an overnight success or got made a name for yourself. People were finding they could suddenly name their own ticket, name their own projects. And uh, there's there's a sense of that with the razor's edge of, of of Bill sort of suggesting that, you know, let's let's spread my wings a little bit, let's do something that's not ghostbusters or not not stripes or not meatballs, you know. And um uh, predictably it it was. Not a hit. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it the wasn't. Lead.
0: But it does have an avenue that Murray at that time wasn't putting all his eggs in one basket. He was, like, diversifying and thinking, well, what types of roles can I play? What types of career can I
1: have in some ways? Yeah, and now we know the career that he has had. It's very interesting looking back on, on the roots of that mm. and how he's almost always done that. The, the stuff that he's doing in films today, the way his, he, he sort of... Plans and manipulates his own career. He's always done it, you know. Right, right back to those early days. He's always had feet in in different camps. And as you say, the three films in '84 really, really epitomized that.
0: Yeah, and well, sadly, potentially for the other filmmakers involved, only one of those films was a big hit yeah. and uh, put him on the map. So, Ghostbusters literally. Blew up, went round the world, was a massive mega success and uh, completely changed probably the types of movies that he did for the rest of the 80s, I would say. He didn't really, I mean, yeah, he didn't really do the types of stuff that we've been talking
1: about already between 84 and ninety. No, no, he didn't sort of stretch himself so much. Uh, I I think he 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 got into this little niche by then, and and it could well be that he'd done those three very different films in '84, and with Ghostbusters being the smash, you know, he he sort of decided, right, that's that's my career path for for the next few years, you know, and we'll and we'll see what comes, you know. Well, that's what I thought had happened. So a little bit of reading about why it took
0: four years between him filming Ghostbusters. Him releasing his next bigger leading role in *Scrooged* in 1987, yeah. uh, 88. So uh, he'd done *Little Shop of Horrors* small cameo playing the yeah, uh, yeah. the Jack Nicholson torture victim role at the dentist. Yes, yeah. Um, and he'd done a couple of, of odd cameos for in a music video, and he'd done a cameo in *She's Having a Baby* uncredited. So you know, he he he, he wasn't doing anything uh, for four years until Scrooge came out. Yeah, um, and apparently I was reading, I was reading that he he moved to France because he was struggling with the uh, the amount of attention Ghostbusters brought. So yeah. he packed the whole family up and moved to France for three four years, and was just coming back into it, back into the world of filmmaking for Scrooged, and then it kicked on for his second half of his career. That's interesting. I, think I find that really interesting and
1: not surprising, knowing Bill Murray's career. Not, not at right. all. No, you, you, you do, you do get personalities like this in in showbiz and entertainment every now and then. I, I suppose that the classic example is Kurt Cobain, you know, mm. who who suddenly became an overnight success and hated it. Yeah, you know, and Bill was sort of in that position where where okay, he he'd had hits with things like Stripes and stuff but um nothing like the the mega success of of ghostbusters i wonder if it came as a big surprise to him i wonder if he wasn't quite expecting it to be so overwhelming you know well yeah i am not sure he expected the film to be as much of a hit as it was I don't, think, <laughs> I
0: don't i think i think bill murray seems to be the kind of kind of guy who's always surprised when something's a massive hit i mean cuz yeah. he hated groundhog day yeah, yeah, he hated Groundhog Day, and that was a massive hit and a massive yeah. popular, and people loved that film. But he hated it, and yet, so much that so he had a massive falling out with Harold Ramis over it, you know, and, and didn't speak to him for thirty years. It's like, yeah, damn, this this film's too successful, Harold. But he does feel a little <laughs> bit like that. I think he's probably yeah. there's, a, there's a level that he's comfortable with the film
1: being. Yeah. So but popular, you, you but can, not so you popular. can see that with both movies because Ghostbusters was being talked up by Dan Aykroyd before it came out. In the couple of years as it was in, in development and being made, Aykroyd was talking to magazines and so on, and he was saying, Oh, yeah, this is going to be a bit like one of those old Bob Hope horror comedies in the 1930s and 40s, you know, like the Ghost Breakers or Cat and the Canary or something. We're aiming for that sort of 1930s vibe. And then the film comes out and it's got 80s written all over it, you know, and it's just what audiences wanted at the time. And it came out around the same time as Gremlins, the Joe Dante film. Mm. And bang, bang, within a couple of weeks of each other, we got these two mega fantasy movies um, that didn't have big stars in, you know, but but they they made they made stars out of their casts. And Groundhog Day the same, you know. On paper, that sounds like a little nice, independent type, gentle fantasy movie that's that, that's probably going to do fairly well and find its cult audience. But you'd, you'd never have expected that to become a blockbuster. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I can imagine that in both cases it might well have been a bit of a surprise how successful they were.
0: So what do we think, what, what does he bring to Ghostbusters then? Because the, the part was originally written, I mean, the original ideal cast for Ghostbusters for Dan Aykroyd was the th- three of them. And it was going to be yeah. Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi and Eddie Murphy. Those yes, the yeah. three. And obviously John Belushi um, dropped out on account of being dead. Um, and Eddie Murphy, that went away. He became maybe became too big a star at that point. Yes, basically. you know he was too on the back big of for Ghostbusters. Yeah, <laughs> too big, Exactly. Yeah, too big for Ghostbusters, which is, is is insane to think about now. But there
1: you go. What what do you think he brings to the role of Peter Venkman? I'm in two minds about this really because I didn't take to the character when I first saw the film. Right. I didn't really know Maury's work all that well, apart from having seen the uh, the sort of early comedy films. Um, we didn't know him from TV over here. And I found him, well, A, I, as I've said, Dan Aykroyd had been sort of pitching this as being a sort of Bob Hope style movie. So I, I went into the film in at Christmas 84 sort of expecting that. That was the first thing for me. I thought, oh, Dan's, Dan's lied to us. This hasn't got that sort of 30s vibe at all. You know, it's very brash and in your face and very 80s. And it took me a while to adjust to that. And then Morrie comes on and he's doing his usual sort of acerbic, cynical, cold character. Well, for me, that's how I sort of read it. And I thought, this, this really isn't a fit for this film. I'm, I'm not sure that I like this guy in in being so prominent he'd he'd be a good character in the film if he took a bit more of a back seat I don't like the fact that he's up front and he's doing all the talking you know and now I know a little more about Bill and I know more about his screen persona revisiting Ghostbusters I, I I I think he's great in the film I'm still not sure he's a good fit for it but then millions and millions and millions of viewers who love it prove me wrong on that because See, I, I, I feel that. that
0: his his like the acerbic uh, cynical downplayed role I guess he's not you say it's like it's, 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 90, it's 80s on the screen it's brash thing, and he's not that character he's not yeah. the brash 80s lead character in this that the movie is and yeah. I think maybe that downplaying works off the ridiculousness of the ghost, the ridiculousness of the uh, 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 of the whole premise, really well. And I feel like almost if that you had John Belushi in the role, playing it with his exuberant uh, gusto that he would normally bring to those kind of roles, I'm not sure that would have worked either for me. No, because he'd
1: he'd he'd be bigger than the ghosts, almost, yeah. which you don't really want. You 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 want Mr. Stay Puffed, and um, you know the Slime Ghost and everything. You 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 want. The, you want sorry, 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 sorry. I'm going to stop you there, Daryl. The highlights. Slime Ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slimer, come on. Uh, slimer. <laughs> slimer, yes, yeah. You want them to be the the sort of the, the big sort of highlights of the film. And and I think Belushi would have taken something away from them. He'd have done he'd have been doing comedy of the style that the special effects characters were doing, you know. And you don't really want that. You want the humans more sort of rooted and you want them working as a team. And uh I'm not sure we get that with Murray either though. I I, I think um that the three other guys work very well as 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 sort of um, finely honed sort of team and we sort of watch their development as they sort of go out on different missions and capture the ghosts and investigate what's happening and so on and Bill seems to stand a little bit aloof from that for me or did when when I first saw the film and uh, again that was something I couldn't quite take to I wanted this to be the story of guys who were sort of fighting to to make a name for themselves in, in a sort of hostile um, environment and the, they were trying to convince people that ghosts exist. I wanted the story to be their sort of rise to fame and and, their, and to look at their achievements and how they get everyone on their side and everyone believing them. And Bill's character sort of undercuts that a little by being... Well, I don't think that's sinister-
0: the story, Daryl. I don't think that's well, the
1: story because uh, I always. It asked, is. One it thing is, it is. isn't. It isn't. But that's the story I I sort <laughs> of <laughs> expected it to be, and yeah, that's why yeah. that first viewing slightly disappointed me. I was judging it on on what it had failed to be in my eyes. So yeah, returning to it years later, you know, I appreciate it much more, and I can see that Bill's performance is very good. I I would still say that he he sort of stands slightly outside mm. of the movie though and I'm not sure that that works for it. We well, for me I feel that he's is not a
0: traditional the audience viewpoint. Sure. He's not like in in that some, in a lot of those movies you get the guy on screen that is representing the audience and saying the things that the audience are thinking. Whereas Bill's not really entirely that, but he does have those moments where he says the things the audience are thinking. You know where yeah. where like they're in the prison and they're going like it's a it's crazy, um, ectoplasmic designs, but it's going to be at epic proportions. And, and you look at Bill Murray and Bill goes, don't look at me, you know, as, as, as if to say, <laughs> I think these guys are crazy, you know. And so he plays that role, I think, in this movie, putting against the enthusiasm. But what I think is really, I think is really successful with Ghostbusters is they don't spend all the time of the movie convincing people that ghosts are real and having mm. to have the whole plot line where someone goes, ghosts aren't real, blah, 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 and they got to say, they're just like, no, they are real, because look, there's one on screen.
1: Yeah, yeah. We no, we've seen it on screen, we know we're in a world where ghosts exist, let's move on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's time time now to mention um, the 2016 Ghostbusters remake and Bill's little cameo in that, because of course he, he plays a, uh, a paranormal debunker he does, in, yeah. in In his little two minute scene in the new Ghostbusters, so so he's playing in in the new movie precisely what you're saying isn't isn't really present in the in the original. And it's a nice little two three minute cameo for him. I think you know he's playing a character called Martin High, who's nothing to do with the original film. And yeah, he he comes in and um, the girls have got a, a ghost sort of captured in in one of their little contraptions and. Uh, Again, he's he's all typical Bill Maury, you know, uh, looking really cool with a great hat on, great suit on, almost Hunter S. Thompson-like, you know, and... uh, um, and he's saying, you, you, you're you telling me you've got a ghost, you know, show me. I don't believe it. So nice little cameo. And it's interesting that uh, he plays that sort of role in the light of the comments that you've just made about the original film. Yeah, yeah. Where yeah. that may be a sort of missing element. And it's an element that I sort of wanted in the film. I think the, the, what for me, the, the, the set differences, and i have mean,
0: discussed this many times with friends over Ghostbusters and the new Ghostbusters, which I, I actually quite enjoyed the new Ghostbusters. Me too, yeah. But what I feel was missing was the believability of the world. I didn't mm. believe the world of the new Ghostbusters. It felt very much like a comedy film world. Whereas yeah, the, Ghostbusters, yeah. the original Ghostbusters, it felt like that stuff was happening in New York yeah, yeah. in 1984.
1: People often say about Ghostbusters, the, the 84 original, that New York is almost like a character in the film. Mm. And I, I think as a setting, it's used really well, you know, with without it necessarily being, oh, we're, we're at the top of the Empire State Building, we're at the Twin Towers, you know. We're on the Brooklyn Bridge. It's, it's, it doesn't use sort of recognisable landmarks like that, but what it uses is New York attitude, and it uses landmarks that will be known to New Yorkers, but maybe not not necessarily to the rest of the world. And yeah, it does use it as a very real place. And I think that's always good for fantasy films like that. Mm. If, if if you can root your story in a, a very recognisable setting, you know, it enhances the thrill and the amazement of 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 what's going on in in the fantastical uh, the fantastical part of the story so uh, and and again bill bill i suppose works in that he's almost a human equivalent of new york in that film in that case in that he's keeping it real if you want to use that phrase you know he's 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 a very sort of human a very typical almost a typical new yorker in in that sense you know he's reacting to all the events in the way that any any guy from the bronx would react to them
0: yeah yeah definitely uh,
1: and and that's that's sort of grown on me over the years so yeah i uh, i appreciate more and more what, what he's doing the more i see the film but uh, I've, I've i've still i've still got my own problems with it but uh, um but yeah as i say Who's who's right, me or or however many hundred million dollars at the box office? You know. Yeah,
0: and the millions of adoring fans around the world. Indeed, and yeah, indeed, yeah, listening yeah. to this podcast. <laughs>
1: uh, but let's find out. You 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 could
0: be on that island uh, yourself. yourself. <laughs> um, I've <been> there before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting we talked about that. We were, I was kind of saving the New York as a character thing it was very much, very much in Ghostbusters. But it was also quite a trend of the nineteen eighties. It felt like. The movies of the 1970s depicted New York as a squalid, scum-ridden, you know, the society, house, real yeah, rain's yeah. going to come down and wipe the scum from the streets kind of yeah, place. Yeah. But in the 80s, it was very much like, this is where you can become a millionaire overnight. We've got high-rise buildings. We've got people in suits walking down the street. We've got taxis being called. It was like It was very much New York as a city of dreams.
1: Yeah, I think over the last forty years, New York has really rebranded itself, and uh, and and it sort of started there, really. I I, I think, yeah, you're right. You can trace it back to uh, that point forty years ago, just just pre-Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. Well, that leads
0: me into uh, Quick Change, which has a different view of New York. (laughs) Oh, yes. So definitely a character in that movie. A character that is actively working against our lead characters, in that. Um, now, Quick Change, we've picked Quick Change out because it is the only movie that Bill Murray directed in mm. his, his current career. You know, he's, he, who knows, maybe he'll pluck one out of the, uh, thin air in his mid 70s. Uh, but currently, up to this point, it's the only movie that he's directed. He co directed Co yeah.
1: directed, indeed. Yeah,
0: yeah. Co-directed with Howard Franklin, the write- co-writer of the film. And um, Howard Franklin went on to do The Public Eye with Joe Pesci. He works again with Bill Murray on Larger Than Life, the giant elephant movie. And uh, he also wrote the screenplay for another Murray vehicle, The Man Who Knew Too Little.
1: Um, yeah. Late yeah. 90s.
0: So yeah. again, those connections. And this is, this is for me, is a, a trend of Murray's career. He tends to work with people he knows. There's always some sort of connection between Mm. characters in his movies if he's doing this movie why is he doing this movie oh yeah the guy who wrote the screenplay was the guy who wrote the screenplay for that movie or directed that movie and always working with Wes Anderson again or he's working with Jim Jarmusch again or he's working with the Farrelly brothers again so there's always there's some sort there's always a connection from pretty much from the late 80s through to now there's always an obvious reason why Bill Murray did this movie yeah he's he,
1: he's not he's not the kind of performer who makes three or four films a year you know and uh, it's it's like he works when he wants to as i said earlier on he seems to have always had, had this exercise this control over his own career and wh- wh- whether it's he he feels safe around certain people or whether he knows that the work is going to be of a certain quality or most likely i think it could be that he He likes working with people where he knows he's going to be allowed to do what he wants to do, that he's going to be given a bit of freedom. And mm-hmm. who better to give you freedom than your mates, you know, people you've been working with for years. Yes. And every now and then, every 10 years or so, it seems he finds somebody new as well. He finds a Jim Jarmusch or he finds a Wes Anderson who sort of take the place of Ivan Reitman or Harold Dramis, and he can now work with them on on a regular basis, and uh, and he feels comfortable with them. But, yeah, Quick Change is, is a really, really nice little film. And it, 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 the, the story had been filmed once before. It had been made as a uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo movie only five years earlier called, right, called okay. uh, holding which was which was based on the the novel by jay Cronley is called quick change yeah. and um, but Belmondo had filmed it uh, I think in Canada as uh, as hold up same same story done i think more as a drama than than the sort of comedy drama that it turns into here, but yeah, quick change sort of came out of nowhere really it 's uh, one of those movies that turned up at multiplexers as multiplexers were beginning to spring up. And and it it benefited from the fact that multiplex cinemas were emerging in Britain because it was ideal as the sort of film that would play on like screen 10 or something. You'd go and see that if you couldn't get into whatever blockbuster had opened that week. And I think having, having got in to see quick change having been disappointed at queuing up and not getting into your first, first or second choice, and you'd say, oh, we'll go and see this thing with Bill Murray, and instead It's to be one of those movies that you'd come out of thinking that was unexpectedly great, you know, mm. that that was something really special, you know, I, I think it's a lovely little film.
0: I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan, I'm a big fan of it, it's one of my favourite of, of Murray's entire career, really, but I do love those densely plotted comedies like this where it's like like the like big lebowski or something like that where the plot it, is so dense that a lot of the comedy comes from the plot you know rather than
1: the great a- thing about this story is it begins so simply it's, it, it's a it's a simple story of a bank heist but with odd twists you know I don't want to give too much away to to anyone who hasn't seen it although it's 30 years old now so you you, you ought to have seen it if you're interested but uh, but yeah it's a sort of bank heist with with a twist and um and then it's the story of the getaway and it ought to be a simple story and it works as a simple story up to a point but then I mentioned that uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo's holdup was made in 1985. Another film made that year uh, was Martin Scorsese's After Hours. And I think After Hours has quite a bearing on on this film in that what we get is not the story of a bank heist and the story of the getaway. We get the story of how all of that begins to unravel Mm. and how everything in the city... People, places, situations, events, all conspire against our gang as they try and make their way to to safety. And, of course, you've got stealing the show again, even stealing the show from Bill, I would argue. You've got Jason Robards as the uh, the sort of grizzled old world-weary detective who is uh, going through every detective cliche in the book and knows he is and hates himself for it. And that all becomes part of the character, you know. And uh, he's on their trail, you know, and he's only a couple of steps behind. It's it, it's great. If you like heist movies, it's brilliant. If you like those sort of stories where the world seems to be conspiring against the lead characters, it's, it's a great example of that. It's a really good comedy. Bill's on top form. You've got great supporting cast. Randy Quaid, Gina Davis...
0: Yeah, Randy Quaid is really a standout
1: in this. I didn't quite oh, yeah, steal it yeah. from Bill Murray, but he's definitely
0: uh, veering towards that. And also, this, it kind of set the tone for his career for the next three or four years. You know, he played this yeah. role and was playing those kind of sort of like simple, slightly dumb, whiny kind of characters, you know, for two or three years after that.
1: Usually you know we've talked about Ghostbusters and we talked about some of his other big big movies we, we sort of skipped over Scrooge where I think this this happens as well you know Bill's Bill's very much the focus and the star and, um, and here he he, he he almost takes a, a, a back seat at times and lets the other performers sort of come through. And is that a consequence of him uh, him directing the film? And is it him sort of giving them a bit of leeway? Or is it simply the fact that they're such a great cast?
0: I, th- I, think, it's a, I think it's a bit of both. I think also, I think once he takes the makeup off uh, and, and, and they get away, he becomes the straight guy in the movie. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's the guy who things are happening to him. The comedy stuff is happening external to him and impacting mm. on this guy who just needs to get to the airport.
1: It's almost like, they, yeah, they, those characters have got to react to bizarre situations rather than them being the characters that are prompting the the yeah. the, 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 the funny stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: And obviously Randy Quaid plays into that as, as being an obstacle himself. So yeah, yeah. he gets to have some of the more outrage,
1: more slightly more outrageous comedy bits, I guess. It's a great ensemble cast. Bill Bill working very well as part of an ensemble. Good good director as well, I think. You know, it's a shame that he's not done more. I, I gather the reason for this they they were looking they were looking for name directors to yeah. do this. Yeah, they, did. They, approached, they approached Jonathan Demme, Ron Howard.
0: Yeah. Well, he approached Jonathan Demi. Jonathan Demi turned them down. He was doing something else, Silence of the Lambs, I believe. <laughs> so, you know, he, he waited. To do, you can do Silence of the Lambs, that'll get you an Oscar, or you can do a Quick Change with Bill Murray. Oh, that was a tricky choice. Uh, me turn it around. Ron Howard turned it down. Apparently, Ron Howard turned it down, and he said the script's not funny enough. Yeah, and At which yeah. point, Bill Murray went, F you, and never
1: spoke to him again. Well, even, well, now. Yeah. even now. Even now, he's still holding the grudge. Yeah I've also read that Howard Howard read the script and he concluded I I don't know who the good guy is here Yeah um I I don't know who the audience is supposed to root for
0: That's that's why it's so great Yeah I think but I think one of the reasons is that they're trying to make New York the character but a bad character like, yeah, yeah. like this city is going to the dogs, It's scum. This city, this the, the, the amount of times all the characters, the cops, the the the, the 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 robbers, all of them say, "This city, this goddamn city, this city is is scum." Yeah, you know, it's like all of them say it all the way through the film, and the film really lays that on thick. And I'm yeah, wondering whether totally I've done to say that actually, there's only so much you can take before. The, the, the reasonable person,
1: the natural, sensible person would rob a bank and fly to Fiji. That, yeah, that's yeah. what everyone would do. So in in the terms that you were talking about a few minutes ago then, Adam, you're saying that quick change is the last movie of the 1970s. I think I well, I think it definitely
0: goes... me I mean, a lot of those 80s movies are all about New York, like Brewster's Millions, like Secret of My yeah. Success, even things like Wall Street, which is supposedly showing greed is bad, greed is good. And it is, it's supposed to be negative. I don't think people watched it as that necessarily as a negative view of the city. I think it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's where yeah. your dreams can go. That's where you can become a millionaire. Whereas Quick Change, it's all about this city is scum. This
1: city is is pushing its folks beyond, you know. Yes. And and, and that, that then becomes the perfect backdrop for things to go wrong. Absolutely, it, yeah. Phil sort of seems to be conspiring against them at times, you know. Great, great little film, you know. It sort of came out of nowhere and it's such a shame that Bill hasn't felt the need to to go back to, to directing. But then he, he didn't really want to direct this, this in the first place. Well, it's so. funny,
0: I read the interview about him and, and the article from 1990 was like, Bill Murray um, embraces directing, you know, and it's just like, and it shows Bill Murray saying like, it started a fire in me, you know, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a passion I can possibly direct. And then literally in the same sense, he goes like that, but it was a real pain and it was a real hassle. So maybe, it a couple of years off before I go back to it again. And even in that interview in 1990, he thought he really didn't like directing at all. Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the yeah. quotes was like, the amount of power you get as a, as a major star in a movie is quite a lot. You get more as a director, but the amount of work you have to do to get that little (laughs) bit more power is ridiculous. (laughs) And these are promotional
1: tours for the film, you know. So I'm not sure whether that was the best angle to take in promoting this movie. Having found that out, he he sort of decided, I I ain't going there again. Now, I mentioned that um, I, I think After Hours had a considerable influence on quick change. Let's link another Scorsese film with another Bill Murray film Move on to What About Bob? Or as I call it, Cape Fear the comedy. You know, yep. it was made it was made in the same year as Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear remake. And to me, essentially the, the the same characters in the same sort of situation. Psychiatrist and and patient, one wanting to try and distance himself from the other, and the, the patient coming after him, you know. And uh, I think What About Bob is a, is another great little sleeper of a movie, you know, yeah. it was yeah. dialecting. it's Richard Dreyfus, who was on a real sort of career comeback and a real career upsurge at that time. Uh, he'd done all ways with, with Spielberg, he did this, uh, what, what else was he doing around Down the time in off? Down that in Beverly Hills, yeah, in door, yeah, yeah. Stakeout, you know, so he'd had a few hits. Yeah, the two the two stakeout films. Yeah, so uh, so yeah, he 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 really sort of made a comeback at this point, and he and he he proved once again that you know years on from from working with Spielberg, he could still carry a movie for someone who's a an unconventional sort of leading yeah. man. You know, he can still carry a big big budget big Hollywood film and they're here working with Frank Oz and again it's it's a fantastic little sleeper of a film I think.
0: Yeah no it's great I mean in preparation for this uh, podcast I used to use What About Bob when I was teaching screenwriting and I used to use the opening sequence of What About Bob as a way of concisely getting the characters on screen with literally by the end of the opening credits you know exactly who Bill Murray's character is and exactly who Richard Dreyfuss' character are, before the credits are over. You know, you've got Bill Murray up and down his apartment, um, panicking, double, doing the OCD, locking, opening, punching in, trying to weave the house, uh, cloths, um, tissues on the handles of doors, all that kind of stuff. And you've got the arrogant Richard Dreyfuss in his office, his New York office, you know, overlooking the city with his brand new book on the shelf. You know, he's like, okay, this, putting these... It's almost like, what What do we need to do to make this film? Well, you just put those
1: characters together. You've done your visual shorthand. You've sort of told us who these guys are. Yeah. Yeah, now bang them together. Yeah. And do you know what, Rewatching some of Bill's films in, in a short space in preparation for today, it occurred to me that uh, Stripes actually opens in, in quite a similar way in terms of the way it just sort of introduces us to the characters and and gives us a little bit of information about them, and then puts them all in the army. Yeah, you know, yeah. so so. But it doesn't start as a it, you know, it's a military comedy that starts out as something else. You know, and uh, and what about Bob sort of goes down that same sort of route. You know, it really just it, it takes that little bit of time at the start to to just let us know who these people are, what their background is, what their views are, and then. Yeah, bang! We see how they how they sort of relate to each other, and as I say, it's cape fear with laughs, basically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't. It wouldn't take much to tweak this into being a horror or or or, 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 a, or a dark thriller or something like that. It almost is a stalker is, film. Yeah. Well, they definitely play. They definitely play on that. They definitely play on that in the film. You know, you think Bob's gone? Bob's not gone. He never goes. <laughs> he's there. He's at the front
1: door to the point where he he almost becomes like a sort of supernatural character you know <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. They, they they just can't get rid of him you know he's, he's almost haunting them and I, I I think the scene in the film that epitomizes that is for, for most of the first half of the movie, Dreyfus has been talking about this book that he's written and how he's got morning TV coming to the house live to interview him. And he keeps dropping this into conversation all the way through the first half of the film. And um, it's interesting where they put that scene because it doesn't form the climax of the movie as you suspect it might do. It appears about halfway through and the the camera crew all turn up at the the holiday home where, where the family are living and Murray's character takes over the interview. And in Dreyfus's eyes, he ruins it and he destroys his career. In everybody else's eyes, it's a tremendous success. And Bill, Bill's character becomes this, this, almost becomes this celebrity in his own right, you know. And he's but because he's stolen Dreyfus' Thunder. The the world at large, the mass American TV audience included, now see this guy as something great, something wonderful, and all that does is make Dreyfus sort of seethe even more about him. You know. Well,
0: it becomes the tipping point, doesn't it, where he starts to take affirmative action against Bob in the movie after that beforehand it was all like oh don't don't speak to him don't do this don't and after that it was like you go into the sanitarium we're going to lock you up for a few hours yeah. you know he
1: starts to make more that's the pivot yeah yeah so it's perfectly placed in the middle of the film i think because it gives you that that whole dynamic for the second half and it's great how they sustain all this i think that again it's a really tight script in that something that could have become meandering. You know, if if you've got a plot about a sort of stalker-type character or somebody who just won't go away or is annoying you, there's only so many avenues that can go down. And really, you know, it seems to be a pretty sort of one-route sort of thing in, in most scenarios, most cases. But the skill of the script here is to keep it lively and keep it moving and keep it inventive and keep bringing these little changes and shifts into it. And um, and I think the actors play off each other really well. I, I gather they didn't get on the, all that well on set.
0: Yeah, apparently they, they yeah they were like a bit like chalk and cheese and didn't get on, and uh, they haven't collaborated since. <laughs> so, uh, that probably says a lot. I mean, Bill Murray tends to come back with people, doesn't he? So
1: as we've been saying, Bill loves working with guys that he gets on with. So I guess the opposite is true as well. You know. Yeah. Well, that, that, I mean,
0: this is an interesting period for Bill Murray as well, because it was just before um, Groundhog Day, which is a big hit. Yeah. Um, but almost after Groundhog Day, he actively went against that
1: and moved away from comedy for a couple of yeah, years. Yeah. I mean, maybe, like, maybe, maybe for the reasons we were talking about earlier—that you know, it, maybe it was a reaction to the success of Groundhog Day. It was like, yeah. right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to distance myself. from Everyone would have been expecting Groundhog Day 2 or similar sort of roles, similar sort of comedic parts. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm not going there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. He did Mad Dog and Glory the same year, but then he yeah. did Ed Wood, a small yeah. role in Tim Burton's Ed Wood, a great movie. Yes. Um, Surprise, obviously didn't come back and work with Tim Burton again, but which yeah, they seemed yeah. like they would
1: have been a good fit. He worked very well in the movie. He played uh, mm. the, the real life figure uh, Bunny Breckenridge in, in, mm. in the film. And from what you see on screen, he seemed to have a good sort of connection with Burton. And and you can imagine him appearing in, in other Burton movies. You know, he'd have been great in something like Mars Attacks, for instance. You know, yes. you, can, yes. you can almost see him in that Jack Nicholson role in Mars Attacks. But uh, strange that he didn't work with Tim again.
0: Yeah, and then and then he came back to comedy and comedy in a big way. I think he had three fairly silly comedies after this. Yeah, yeah. you know, Kingpin. We we worked with the Farrelly Brothers, who he worked again with in in Dumb and Dumber Two, oh. uh, fairly recently. A little cameo in that, and Larger Than Life, which is the, directed by Harold Franklin, who co-directed Quick Change. Yeah, and Space Jam. Which apparently, he did because he's a big basketball fan. Yeah. So you know, again. No, the rhyme and reason for Bill Murray's reasons to do movies um, can be as flippant as like, "I'm a big basketball fan. I want to be
1: involved." Well, that, that's him all over, really. You know, as, as I say, he he does what he wants to. Mm. What what, a, what and what a way to live. That's that's yeah. how to do it. You know.
0: Yeah. So so, mate. I guess after after those big comedies, he started to move more into dramas, and he started to forge relationships with certain filmmakers that would continue on.
1: So I'm thinking, like um,
0: Rushmore, in 1998.
1: Yeah. That's with Wes Anderson. He, he's worked in every Wes Anderson film since. He's been exactly, includes you know, he's in he's in the brand new one as well. So uh, I think maybe it's some sort of
0: contract that Wes Anderson signed. You're going to be successful, but you have to include Bill Murray in every movie
1: you make uh, yeah. from now on. Within within that sphere, Bill will sometimes play Steve Zizou and he'll have the title role and the main part. Or he'll he'll do a little walk on cameo, you know, or he'll do something in between or he'll be part of an ensemble cast. So even working for the same director, yeah. he, he, he will still sort of move around and switch around and, and you never quite know what you're going to get. He might be on screen for two seconds. He might be the star of the film.
0: Yeah, I think I think I don't think it matters to him. No, uh, this particularly at this point, I think there were certain films where he wanted to be the leading man, and then this films he did because he wanted to work with Wes Anderson, and then he'd do yep. the role that was right for the film. Any any particular favourites with the uh, with Wes for you, Adam? I'm a big Royal Bounds fan. Um, yeah, but again, Bill's only in that, he, 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 a minor role in that. Um, yes, he is. Life Aquatic is great.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think. Very silly. It's almost like the the more Bill Murray you get, the better the better I like the film. You know, in, in, <laughs> for for Wes and and Steve Zizou is is my absolute favourite Anderson film, and and a, a lot of that is down to the fact that it's it's got Bill in it. He really works for me in that movie, and I think his persona fits that character to a T. And the film's very inventive as well. I mean, the the Bill isn't the whole story. He he's he's the lead character and the title role. But he's he's also part of an ensemble. He just happens to be the sort of head of that ensemble, you know. But um I think Anderson gives that film real life and verve and colour. It's got all these little quirky, unexpected moments, and and you can you can never quite put a handle on what's going to happen in that film. You know, considering the starting point of it is let's make a movie about a sort of Jacques Cousteau type character. It it, it then doesn't go in, in in the direction that you're expecting it to.
0: Yeah, it was a particularly purple patch for Bill Murray, that 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 2003 to 2005 period yeah, where he yeah. did Lost in Translation and, and started his work with Sophia Coppola because he's done his work with
1: Sophia Coppola on a number of occasions as well. Working with Anderson and with Jim Jarmouche as well. Got to mention there um, that Bill in Coffee and Cigarettes works with what what may just about be Quad's favourite band or one one of, one of Quad's very favourite artists, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan.
0: I, I don't know why it's Quad's favourite artist. One of my favourite, certainly one of my favourite hip-hop groups, definitely. And what
1: a bizarre little vignette it is as well.
0: But again, started that collaboration with Jim Jarmusch and he's worked with Jim Jarmusch on a number of occasions since then particularly in Broken Flowers, which I think is one of your faves, Daryl.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love it, love it. Great to catch up with that again uh, last week. It's it's interesting mentioning that in tandem with Coffee and Cigarettes, because um, Coffee and Cigarettes was sold as being a film made up of different shorts, whereas Broken Flowers is seen more as a sort of narrative film, but it actually they actually work in the same way. Broken Flowers is very, very episodic, and it's, it's, it's the story of a guy who receives having um, had just come out of a failed relationship he receives a pink perfumed letter alleging that he may be the father of of a boy who's, who's now going to be like 19 20 years old and Bill doesn't want to do anything about it, but his next-door neighbour decides to to research it and send him off on a road trip, and so it becomes a road movie, and it then becomes a vignette movie, because what he does is Bill visits four different ex-girlfriends in turn to see... If they are the person who sent him the letter, but he's not upfront about this. He doesn't sort of confront them and say, Have you just written to me? He sort of skirts around it a little bit, trying to pick up clues, trying to pick up the vibe. And again, the cast is just astonishing, sensational. You know, you you you've got people like Jessica Lang in there, Francis Conroy, Tilda Swinton, uh Sharon Stone, you know, and they're they're playing the ex- and, um, you know, what What a stellar cast you've got. And it's got this very, very enigmatic ending as well. I just think the whole thing works so beautifully. And Bill, again, as with some of his best roles, as with Hunter S Thompson, as with Quick Change, as with Groundhog Day... I cannot think of a better actor to play this particular character mm. very very sort of curmudgeonly doing everything almost against his will you know he's sort of sent out on the road it's like the anti-road movie you know most road movies the characters are out trying to find themselves you know they're searching for something they're, they're on a journey of sort of self-expression this guy doesn't even want to be there mm. <laughs> he's, he's been told to be there by his next door neighbour and uh, and you know Bill is is perfect for it and again it's got a lovely mixture of comedy sentiment and, and serious drama I, I think it's perfectly pitched and man that that ending is is just great
0: yeah it's funny it's funny you mentioned the cast there we had uh john hurt so john hurt was one of quad's patrons and when we, we had A Q&A with him and we was talking about his appearances with with jim Jarmusch and things like Limits of Control, and then, you know, and he and we said, what, what was it like working with Jim Jarmusch? And he just said, if the phone rings and it's Jim Jarmusch, and then he just did the bowing down sign with his hands, I'll do it no matter what the role is. And, I, and, and there's that Sir John Hurt, you know, Oscar-nominated. You know, he could cherry-pick whatever roles he wants. in some cases, you know, in, in many ways. And he was willing
1: to do whatever. That's the same with Bill, I think, you know, I think so, yeah with with certain directors, Jarmouche being one of them, you know, yeah. yeah, so we're not talking about lost in translation
0: as much now, because that feels like a really pivotal key for Murray, where he'd done dramatic roles before, but this was the one that
1: smashed it as a dramatic yeah, role. yeah, yeah, and I think without that he he may he may not have necessarily come to the attention of. Of Wes Anderson, Jim Jarmusch, and some of the other people that he's worked with since, mm. I, I think that showed us an, a, a not a new side to Bill Murray because we we knew that he could do drama and get a little bit more serious. We we've seen some of that even even in some of his comedy parts, mm. and I think Coppola picked up on that for for this movie, and I think other people have since taken that on, and it's defined what Bill Murray the actor is in the 21st century. Yeah, I think it's definitely defined what audience thinks of him. I think his public
0: perception of who Bill Murray is. He's no longer the guy from Ghostbusters, the guy from King. He yeah,
1: ain't meatballs anymore. No. Exactly,
0: yeah. They definitely redefined that.
1: And it's a great movie. And he's great in it, you know. yeah. A lot of his best films seem to be ones where either not very much happens or... In the case of something like Quick Change or What About Bob, you've you've got a very simple setup that then spirals into chaos, and uh, and he, we see how his character and the other characters around him have to react to that. And Lost in Translation again is is a very a very sort of quiet, you know, uneventful sort of film but it's it's all in what's happening in the characters' minds and the audience is being asked to do a lot of work here and to fill in a lot of the gaps and if a filmmaker gets that right it's it's perfect you know and I think it really works in lost in translation it, it's not a confusing film I think we know all the way through what's going on and we know what the characters are thinking and uh, we know what the situation is but at its heart, there isn't really all that much actually happening there. So the, the joy of the film and the skill of the film is getting us to think about what the characters are thinking about. And I think uh, Sophia Coppola does that brilliantly.
0: It's funny, we talked about Bill Murray being slightly... On his own little island in films, you know, like in the Ghostbusters, he's not, he's part of the Ghostbusters, but he doesn't feel like he's part of the team in the same way as the others are. And this fits that perfectly. He feels like a man on his own outside of the rest of the world in some ways
1: yeah 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 i mean the the word lost in the title is interesting because it's got multiple meanings but that i think is the key one and it applies to both of the lead characters you know not only are they in a foreign land not only are they distanced from from family friends or whatever you know but i think i think they they're floundering. They they don't they don't know what to do in in their lives, and and that's that's the the loss for me in the, in the title is that they're, they're they're looking for something and they don't quite know what it is or if they'll recognise it when they find it. Yeah, it's it's such a difficult film to talk about. Not not in terms of giving plot away, but because there's there's so little conventional plot to it you know it's all in the character it's all in getting us the audience to react to what's going on in their minds you know and when you describe it like that it sounds so uncinematic and so potentially catastrophic in in terms of entertainment value but it it, it just works so well it's it's just a brilliant character study and yeah. um, I think the characters are very well written. And again, as 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 we've said about other Bill Murray films, I think the key here is we're given a lot of background early on. You know, they sketch in a lot of detail about these characters, so we we sort of get a handle on who these people are, and that then leads us to more of an understanding of where they might be going as the film uh, as the film's events transpire.
0: Yeah, yeah, and relies heavily on Bill Murray's. Natural cinematic charm, I guess, in that respect. Uh, uh, character, not charm.
1: Yeah. Another film where, where you, you try and think of another male actor in that part and, and there wouldn't be anyone as good. No, no, not at all. So we've, we've, we've galloped through most of his career here and there.
0: I'm just looking at what he's got coming up. And again, we've been talking about this, the connections wise. He's got three films that have been completed, ready to come out. He's got one that's in post-production and one that's in pre-production. He's got a new Wes Anderson movie, The French Dispatch, which should have come out this year, but has been pushed back. I um, will be pushed back. We've got the new Ghostbusters, which has been pushed back. Again, revisiting the role of Peter Benkman, apparently. We've got On the Rocks, another collaboration with Sophia Coppola. So one to look out for next year. Um, we've got the Now a TV series by the Farrelly brothers, who he's
1: worked with. Yeah. So again, it's, it's all that safe ground
0: then. It's yeah, all yeah. those safe grounds, those people he's worked with before. And you're just looking back on his career and you think, yeah, he doesn't do that many. He, he He's never, even for someone who was as big as he was in the 80s, He he never had those ones where we've got this film, we've developed it as a vehicle for Bill Murray kind of films. And Dan Ackroyd had a few of those, John Candy had those movies. He had those movies where we developed this as a vehicle for this star. And if that star can do it, we'll go to a different star who's a bit similar and moving on. Whereas Bill Murray never really had that, never really, maybe it's because his on-screen persona is such a tricky thing to get around.
1: Yeah. Well, we've we've talked we've talked about how he sort of stands aloof and apart from from. You know the, the the rest of the movie in, in in some of his projects, and he's all he's almost got that sort of relationship with with the entire film business. You know, it's almost like he doesn't see himself as being a movie star. He's an actor who works with Wes Anderson and Jim Jarmusch. You know, yeah, he yeah. works with in these little bubbles, and he he almost doesn't regard himself as being a conventional. Hollywood star, you know, it's uh, every now and then you'll you'll a part will come up where he he'll he'll sort of be interested and say yes. Like he, he got the chance to play uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in uh, Roger Michel's movie. High Park on Hudson, and and again, you know, he's 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 not worked not worked with Michelle before or since, but uh, there's there's a, a a decent cast involved in that film, and it's a chance for Bill to again, having played Hunter S. Thompson, it's a chance to play a real person. It's maybe maybe he saw that as a chance to do something a little bit different. and the role appealed to him, and uh, and it and it's it's not it's not simply uh, an FDR biopic either you know it's showing a particular peculiar sort of uh, facet of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's personality and maybe that was the hook for Maury to say yeah I'll, I'll do this you know so every now and then you might get a director that can entice him into doing uh, um, a role that he finds a particular interest other than that it's as Wes Anderson left a message on the answer phone, you know.
0: Well, that we, we, we talked about answer phone, but that's that's one of the great um, stories of Bill Murray's career. He doesn't have an agent. He has a 1-800 number. Yeah, where yeah, yeah. Everyone rings that number to get hold of him, whether it's like your bank manager or whether it's <laughs> a new Hollywood deal, you know. Um, and any, anyone would think he was trying to make it difficult or I mean, something. It does feel that way, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> well, let's draw it to a close there then. Um, Happy birthday, Bill Murray, if you're listening, obviously. <laughs>
1: I can't believe he's 70, but... Uh, no, it's, it is fairly crazy, isn't it? But then, like like Groundhog Day, perhaps he's always been 70, like you say lovely thank you so much daryl
0: and uh we will see you all at home fairly soon
1: once again i want to thank quad and the
0: bfi for supporting our podcast and please do tell your friends check out our facebook group and check out our website where we've got some extended show notes for these films for all the films that we shamelessly name drop throughout this uh, throughout these podcasts uh, you can check those out as well take care see you soon